This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. Doing undercover work, I, I can't tell you how many times I would walk into a house, you know, or even just seeing surveillance equipment of it someone walks into a house and then there's a child just sitting there on the couch you know minding his own business reminding her own business and they're chopping up uh, crystal meth for a deal and then you just think what kind of life are they giving these kids you find with methamphetamine you can buy you can take three grams of it and be up for three days um, and most of our methamphetamine addicts they won't eat or drink or take care of themselves or do sleep for three days straight until they mentally snap, uh, which also is incredibly dangerous. I think the public would, most of the public would agree that the respect would be won by, hey, this guy was driving around, he was roaming the neighborhoods looking for something to steal, someone to victimize, and these guys made it their mission to get out with him, not made it their mission to come right. to my house and do a birthday drive-by or whatever those things are called. This is Diakonos at Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. Every episode, and I mean every single episode, I'm so thankful that you find it valuable to spend time listening uh, to this to this little podcast. It's humbling for me uh, because, listen, I'm just a regular dude uh, with uh, some things to say and uh, some awesome guests that give me a lot of help along the way and, and ha- continue to give me a lot of help. Uh, this episode is no different. In a bit, I have a guest joining me from North Carolina, a deputy sheriff who works in a uh, pretty rural area of that state. And we're going to discuss his career thus far and some of the unique challenges he faces. Uh, but before I do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix it up for this episode and do some things before I dive into that conversation with him. Uh, first of all, I got some new patrons I want to recognize. Uh, second, I want to tell you about a chance you have to win a gift this coming week and, and get entered into a prize drawing. And thirdly, I'm also going to be doing the So Woke It's Broke segment uh, at the top of this episode. But before I do that, I kind of wanted to bring some light to the fact that the beginning of 2022 has been uh, very deadly for police officers. As of the recording of this episode, and per the Officer Down Memorial uh, webpage and the Gun Violence Archive website, eight officers have been outright murdered this year, with nine more officers accidentally killed uh, in the line of duty. Additionally, In uh, 2022, 35 35 officers have already been shot and injured in the line of duty. Uh, Back in 2021, we saw the largest amount of officers murdered since 1995, not counting uh, the 2001 9-11 attack. Uh, 2021 also saw an increase in unprovoked attacks and ambushes on police officers. In addition to the officers being murdered, many more are being assaulted and injured every single year. On average, since 2011, approximately 50,000 officers are assaulted each year, with approximately 28% receiving some type of injury. If you want to know more about the sacrifices of officers every month and year, 
check out the Officer Down Memorial page at www.odmp.org. It's a good place to go and read the stories and incidents of these officers who are killed in the line of duty. The bottom line is that right now criminals are emboldened due to a narrative that has been pushed and supported by mainstream media and politicians, and it is causing an uptick in violence against law enforcement officers. If you know one, pray for his or her safety. If you are one, be alert and vigilant. Pay attention when you're on duty. It's really one of the reasons I do this podcast, just to bring light to the profession, to the calling, to the people that do it, uh, because it's easy to go out there and find a lot of negative stuff about the profession, uh, and I want to push back against that. I'm really excited to announce that I got a couple new patrons since the last episode, and I wanted to give a shout out to one of them, Jared Berkeheiser and his family. Thank you for your support. Uh, if you recall, Chief Berkeheiser was on the podcast as a guest in season one, and now he's a patron supporter as well. So I really appreciate that. Uh, listen, there are many ways you can support the podcast. In fact, on the podcast website, I lay out five ways you can support the podcast. And most of them don't cost you anything. Just go to www.diakonosacc.com and hit the support tab to find out how you can support Diakonos Cops Calling and its mission. To just highlight one way, consider giving me your honest five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and writing a quick review. These ratings and reviews help make the podcast more visible and easier to find for those who have not yet heard it. If you're like me, you like to win and I usually like to win at all costs. This is something that you can win. It's not going to take very much effort. You will be entered into a prize drawing and have a chance to win. If you just do a couple simple things, all you have to do is tell me what your favorite episode has been and why it was your favorite episode. And then also tag two friends in that response uh, who you think would like the podcast. So obviously this is going to be Uh, something that's going to be going out on social media. Actually, it is already out on social media. Uh, So if you check the Facebook page or my Twitter account, there are detailed instructions on how to get entered into this prize drawing. It's pretty simple. Tell me what your favorite episode has been so far. Tell me why. Tag two friends that you think would like the podcast and you'll be entered in for the drawing. Well, what do you win? If you do that, you will be entered into a, a prize drawing for a $25 gift card to Ellicott and Co. Ellicott and Company. What is Ellicott and Company? Well, it's a store I was managing after retiring from Lancaster City and before I got back into law enforcement. The store keeps an American-made focus and holds the motto, curator of uncommon goods for the modern man. But trust me, there are items of quality at the store for the ladies as well. As a previous manager of the store, I have a lot of love for it. And what they do, while they only have one store here in Lancaster, PA, they do provide online shopping and shipping. So even if you are far away, you can get in on this action. So go to the podcast Facebook page or Twitter account, find out how you can get a chance to win uh, with detailed instructions there. And while you're at it, follow me and the podcast on Facebook and Twitter uh, if you haven't already done so. If you're not on social media, but you still want a chance to win, all you got to do is just email me your answer and carbon copy two friends asking them to check out the podcast, and I'll enter you into that drawing. And the email address for Diakonos, the cop's calling is is, uh, diakonosacc at gmail.com. Your chance to win ends next Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. 
Another exciting piece of news is that I'm going to start adding another episode to each month. Now, I use the term episode loosely here, uh, but on the first Tuesday of each month, you'll be treated to a short episode that's going to be called Low Expectations. And on each of those episodes, Gary Lowe is going to be joining me for a short episode about one topic or maybe a couple topics. So we, you know, we may discuss current events, talk about a movie, or just make fun of each other. I don't really know what it's going to look like, but our goal is to have fun, keep expectations low, and just provide a little more to the fans of the show. So I'm pleased to announce the very first low expectations. Take one uh, will be dropping on Tuesday, March 1st. And then my regular long-form episode will be released on Tuesday, March 15th. Uh, I'm always trying to make this better for all of you. No woke lip service here. Just some hard work to make this podcast better um, and and have you uh, engaged with the mission. Speaking of woke, I got a heavy, um, and I do mean heavy, so woke it's broke segment on this episode that I'm going to break down right now and before my conversation with my guest. I know I have a warning at the beginning of these episodes, but I just want to give you a chance to usher out any young ears that you have in the room as I dive into this one. Listen, ultimately, my reason for this new segment is just to bring light to some very dark things. Ultimately, uh, I believe that as a Christian, uh, and and if you are a Christian, we need to be involved in our communities. Uh, While we are not of this world, we are in it, and we need to steward the freedoms and opportunities we have uh, in this country. And, and one of those is voting, and we need to be vigilantly looking at who is running for office, where we live, and what their platforms are. Keeping that in mind and headlining our So Woke It's Broke is LA County District Attorney George Gaskin and his ultra-liberal woke policies that are harming those that live in that county. George Gaskin took office in 2020, And uh, pretty soon after taking office, he issued a special directive that prevented his prosecutors in his office from seeking the death penalty or any sentencing enhancements and cash bail in nonviolent cases. Uh, Gaskin has also been uh, quoted as saying previously, quote, that the brains of juveniles aren't fully developed and that the proper setting to rehabilitate people who commit crimes while underage is a juvenile treatment facility, end quote. This sounds really nice. And there is even some truth behind the statement because we do know that the brains of juveniles are not fully formed and do hinder them from making rational decisions at times. But we must also know and can easily recognize that many juveniles, in fact, the majority, do make solid decisions every day that include not engaging in crime. We must also remember that regardless of the why, there must be accountability. But Gaskin is directly behind this idea that holding juveniles accountable is absolutely last resort and that they should be slapped on the wrist over and over again, allowing them opportunities to reoffend and harm others with little consequences. So that's just a little background on Gaskin uh, for you to consider as I get into this uh, unbelievable uh, story that I, I saw coming out of LA. Most of the information, uh, in this, uh, and this segment comes from articles in the LA Times, the American Conservative, and LawOfficer.com. And here it is. Suspect is a 26-year-old biological male. In 2014, just two weeks before turning 18, the suspect sexually assaulted a 10-year-old girl in the bathroom of a Denny's in LA County. 
This assault included the suspect grabbing the girl by the throat and locking her in a stall with him where he put his hands down her pants. The assault assault was stopped only because someone else entered the bathroom and interrupted it. This crime went unsolved until 2019 when DNA linked the suspect to the sexual assault. The suspect confessed to the crime and he was formally charged in 2021. Over the years, this suspect has been arrested for battery, drug possession, and he also had a conviction for assault with a deadly weapon. I'm not sure why it took so long for the DNA hit uh, on the sexual assault case, but it's possible, and I'm assuming, that the assault with a deadly weapon conviction carried the consequence of forcing him to submit a DNA sample, which then helped solve that crime from back in 2014. After the suspect was taken into custody for the sexual assault, after the suspect decided to begin gender transition and started to identify as a female. DA Gaskin and his office did not file adult charges against the suspect. Instead, they charged him as a juvenile. So the proceedings for this case were heard in juvenile court and held to juvenile conviction rules simply because the suspect was a juvenile two weeks removed from being an adult when he committed the offense. But now at 26 years of age, he was being charged as a juvenile because it happened when he was a juvenile. They didn't have to do this. They decided to do this. And during the proceedings, evidence was presented that the suspect had previously assaulted two other young girls on different occasions in addition to the one he was on trial for. Since this case was tried in juvenile court, the suspect will not have to register as a sex offender. And had the suspect been tried as an adult, he could have been sentenced to nearly 10 years in prison. Instead, This violent child sexual predator is sentenced to two years in a juvenile facility. A 26-year-old biological male sentenced to a juvenile facility for sexually assaulting a 10-year-old when he was nearly 18. Not only that, but because he now identifies as a female, it appears he is now housed with the female population of the juvenile facility. When I read this story, I was livid. I do not understand why in this country we have completely walked away from common sense in dealing with these criminals. Who in their right mind would put this guy in a juvenile facility and then put him with females simply because he now identifies as a female? This is dark stuff. This is evil stuff. This is stuff that should not be happening. And yet it is. D.A. Gaskin and his office are so woke it's broke. He pushes an activist agenda, which downplays the need to hold criminals accountable, allowing radical leftist ideologies about gender identity and age of accountability to drive his office and completely desert his mandate to enforce the law as the head law enforcement official in that county. And that's what he is. When you're a district attorney, you're the head law enforcement official in that county. And he has abandoned the mission of that position. Let me be clear about my stance on some things here. I believe, as Genesis teaches us, that God created human beings. Genesis says male and female, he created them. That's what the Bible says. 
Anyone that is biologically created a certain way and decides to identify as the other gender is stepping outside of God's design. Until recently, this was not a cancel-inducing take. Most people, even if they were atheists and far from God, would have held the same convictions as I just stated. But that is changing in our culture. And Gaskin is thumbing his nose at common sense and truth. He is an activist, not a law enforcement official. He is more concerned with coddling criminals to the point of absolute insanity that puts more people at risk. And this type of activism, unfortunately, is becoming more and more prevalent in law enforcement. I've talked about it in past episodes, and it is a poison to the law enforcement mission. As a Christian, I have a mandate to love and care about others. That does not mean I affirm people in their sin, but it does mean that I should treat people as created by God, as image bearers of God, as we will talk about even later in this episode with my guest. So my mission as a Christian is to treat others like they were fearfully and wonderfully made by God, as Psalm 139 teaches us. So should be the mission of law enforcement, treating all people regardless of their sin and who they are as people created by God and worthy of dignity and respect. But law enforcement should not be anywhere near activism, apolitical in all that they do, only concerned with content of character as it relates to the following or breaking of law and attempting to disseminate justice to the best of their ability in a way that protects others. Unfortunately, we have seen a drift away from that mission and towards activism, and it is so dangerous. It is one of the most concerning things for me in law enforcement right now. For instance, if you Google police departments with gay pride cruisers, you will find many, many examples of police departments that are embracing, supporting, and affirming the homosexual lifestyle. Listen, I know several people who engage in a homosexual lifestyle that I love and care about. As a police officer, I helped and dealt with people in that lifestyle on many, many occasions, providing them the exact same service I would anyone else. But the police department should not be engaged in this type of activism, or any activism for that matter. During the riots and protests of 2021, we saw police departments hashtagging the hate group BLM, which by the way is starting to crumble if you haven't Uh, if you've been paying any attention to the news. But yes, police departments hashtagging the hate group, BLM. We saw chiefs marching with protesters. We saw officers trying to placate and appease activists. And right now in 2022, the same thing is occurring and it's wrong. Law enforcement should not in any way be aligned with any ideology or activists because if they do, We have what's happening in Gaskin's DA office where concern over offending, concern over optics, concern over alleged marginalized groups becomes more important than enforcing the law and protection of others as a whole and for the safety of the communities in which they serve. Maybe you think I'm out of line for thinking this, but let me ask you this. If you saw a police department outwardly embracing the pro-life movement and creating a cruiser with the message abortion is murder. Would you be comfortable with that? If during Gay Pride Month, you saw a police department create a cruiser stating that marriage is only between a man and a woman, would you be okay with that? As a Christian who believes abortion is murder and should be abolished, and who believes that marriage is to be only between a man and a woman, I would not be comfortable with that. 
because those in law enforcement are not appointed for any other reason than to enforce the law. Their biblical mandate is to praise those that keep the law and to kick up the dust in pursuit of those who do evil. I have a faith and strong beliefs as a Christian, but in the course of my duties as a police officer, I am to serve and protect all people, regardless of whether their lifestyle and beliefs line up with mine. My police cruiser should say and represent nothing other than safety and security for those that keep and follow the law and fear and dread for those who want to commit crime. While I believe and espouse what are considered conservative values and seek to share those values, they do not belong on the side of a cruiser, just as the radical left-wing woke values should not be pushed on the side of a cruiser. And that's the danger here, because when activism becomes entrenched in law enforcement, then sides will be picked and law enforcement will lose sight of the mission. And because we live in a sin-soaked world, only one type of activism and only one type of belief system is praised and pushed to the front while others are silenced, vilified, derided, and mocked. Activism will push law enforcement toward a side, and the profession will run the risk of being tossed to and fro, as it is now, in many ways, unanchored and lost, without mission and purpose, subject and controlled by every whim and fancy of radical leftism. But right now, more than ever, political leaders and police chiefs and sheriffs and judges and district attorneys must stand firm against woke activism. They must boldly and blatantly state that they stand with all people who keep the law and they stand against all people who break the law. Leaders who will not let their agencies be hijacked by political correctness, woke talking points, and activist ideologies. Leaders who clearly define expectations and reality of what needs to be done and dare those in political power to fire them. And I mean it. Dare them to fire you. Leaders that can look in the mirror at the end of the day and know they did the right thing, even if they get canceled or fired. That is what we need. End of story, period. And I hope and pray we begin to see that happen. Okay, my guest on this episode is one such law enforcement officer who knows the mission and is trying to fulfill it in his duties. As with all my active officers, he is here on his own volition, off work and joining me from his home in North Carolina. He is not representing his agency and his comments and thoughts are his own. Let's jump into that conversation right now. My guest on this episode is Deputy Sheriff Adam Georgia with the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina. Adam has nearly 10 years experience working for both the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office and the Charlotte Transit Police. Currently is assigned to patrol in Lincoln County, but has past experience as a drug task force officer and as a sergeant with the uh, Charlotte Transit Police. In his current position, he patrols Lincoln County, North Carolina, which covers a considerable rural area that presents challenges as a law enforcement officer. More importantly, he's a man of faith, a brother in Christ, and a family man, and I'm very happy that he is joining me and taking time out of his busy schedule all the way from North Carolina uh, to talk to me about some of these challenges he faces uh, in his career thus far. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast all the way from North Carolina. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, man. Um, the internet is an amazing thing. We can get you on the podcast and talking to me here, uh, which is really cool. And uh, the thing that is kind of throwing me off, and I'm really afraid I'm going to call you by your brother's name because you sound so much <laughs> like your brother. 
and that's and that's how I know you. If, if I could just put out there to the people uh, that are tuning in and listening to this episode, I know Adam because he is the brother uh, to my brother-in-law. So his brother is married to uh, my sister, and it is uh, uncanny how much he sounds uh, like his brother. Do you get that a lot, Adam? Um, not. We don't really have the same circles anymore since he lives all the way with you guys out in Pennsylvania. So right. I don't really, like a lot of the people I'm with don't hear him speak. That's a good point. Yeah, my I have one brother that I sound very much alike, and we both yep. live here in Lancaster County. And uh, uh, yeah, I've been told that I sound very much like him. So <laughs> I will do my best not to call you by your brother's name and and call you Adam throughout this, but. Hey, man. So right off the top here, I got to ask you, um, just real recently, you shared with me a story. And I don't know if this was your call or a call you just heard come over the radio or what, but a stolen it was a stolen car call kind of where a couple basically drove a car all the way from the store to their house and then called in after they realized it wasn't their car. How how does that even happen? I, I don't know. I, that's the eastern part of the county. I'd, I'd work the western okay, so, portion of the county. So it's we're still all broadcasting on the same channel. So we hear everything that goes on across the entire county. Um, okay, so this wasn't a call you handled then. No, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> essentially, what, what I gathered from it was a family was shopping, or a husband and wife. They claimed they got into a car that looked exactly like theirs, drove it all the way home decided that it was not their vehicle, drove it all the way back to the store, then called 911 to ask what they should do about it. So I I don't even so, know how that happens. Yeah, so my question is, how do you, were the keys in the ignition? Was it running? Like, how do you even do that? I, I, the, I guess the claim is that the, the car they got into, the keys were left in that one, and so they had their keys in their hand, didn't know those. I, I don't know how that works. Okay. I, I don't know how you don't notice that your seat's not in the same position. Your mirrors are all different. The gas is at a different level. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's wild to me. It's one of those calls you get, and you're just like, "How? How is this even possible?" Um, and you. But I will say, dealing with the dealing with the public for ten years, they there's never a time where something doesn't amaze you that people can do stuff like that. It's true. That is true. Now, in their defense, I have already gotten into the wrong police cruiser. Like I'm at a scene, there's multiple cars there. They all look the same uh, from the same agency. I've gotten into the wrong police cruiser, but (laughs) upon getting in, quickly realize none of my stuff is in here. Everything is set up different and I don't drive it away. So I don't know. I don't know that it's still baffling to me. I asked the guy, I don't even think the guys who handled it know what happened. I don't know. <laughs> oh man, it's uh, it's crazy. You get to to meet some really uh, interesting incidents where you just kind of shake your head and just uh, try to figure out how in the world do people actually operate in life and <laughs> get through life being okay. Um, and that's just one of those calls that kind of makes you wonder sometimes. But oh yeah. So anyways, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to you and and our discussion for this episode. I think one of the differences between where you're at 
Uh, I mean, there's several differences, but one of them is just the fact that you're a sheriff deputy and not a police officer. The same thing, you do the same thing, but in Pennsylvania, and and I, I know there's other states like this as well, sheriff deputies in Pennsylvania, for instance, do not have the same police powers per se as a sworn law enforcement police officer. Mm. But down in North Carolina, are their police departments are or or are all the departments down there considered uh, sheriff's offices? No, they, so there are police departments and their sheriff's office, and depending on which county you operate in, you might have sheriff's departments that just do civil paperwork, your evictions, your restraining orders, and stuff like that. But in a county like ours, Lincoln County, it's rural enough that there's only one police department in the entire county. Okay. So we are yeah. the courts, the jail, the civil, and all the patrol for the pretty much the entire county. Got you. Yeah, and generally in PA, most of the counties have sheriff's departments, but like you said, they handle the civil. Uh, they're in charge of the court, um, the county courthouse. Uh, they do a lot of like warrant service type things, but but civil things too, like protection from abuse orders yep. um, and serving civil paperwork and certain things like that. So that is one big difference. So, you know, as I, I introduced you as a sheriff deputy, but you are sworn law enforcement officer with arrest powers. You do the work of what would be uh, a police officer here in Pennsylvania. So I just wanted to clarify that. And another difference with that is with a sheriff's office, the sheriff is an elected position, correct? Correct. Uh, yeah, he's okay. Yeah, he's basically a, it's a almost a po- political position. Okay. And whereas here in Pennsylvania, a chief of police is appointed, they're not elected into their position, they are appointed by an elected official. The sheriff uh, for your agency would be an elected position and how long are their terms? They serve four-year terms. Okay. And so every four years, there's an election. What does that flavor your, like what you do as a deputy sheriff then? I mean, I'm just trying to like wrap my mind around the head of the agency being an elected official and how that uh, can affect what what the deputies do in that agency or or doesn't it really matter that much in my career so far it hasn't mattered there it becomes tense during what we call election season right because you have different sheriff's candidates jockeying for position over the next uh election so you as you know as a deputy you're trying to appear to do a good job so that the person coming in has a reason to keep you. Because the the big thing when you're hired by a sheriff's office is you work at what's called the sheriff's leisure. So okay. really, the sheriff doesn't inherently need you, and you can you can be asked to leave at any time. So that creates okay. a little bit of, of tension when you are um, going through your day-to-day during sort of the time that elections are going on. Um, the hard part is, is, you know, during election season, when um, there's different candidates, there might be more than one candidate that's a good fit for the agency. So they're all trying to get votes, your votes, the public's votes, and you don't want to 
um, appear to favor one or the other in case, you know, one of them gets voted in and then you look like you're not uh, in support of the new sheriff. Interesting. Yeah. So you work at the leisure of the sheriff. So you're, you basically, you kind of don't have a level of protection. I mean, do you guys have an association that protects you and helps you keep your job if a sheriff comes in that doesn't like you for whatever reason or no they're much out of there is there you're out of luck um and that's why it becomes tense for those in high ranking positions and i think for the most part we've we've always had good people in you know the office so they've not really worried about it but in reality a sheriff can come in and say okay i need to clean house you know they're claiming there's the good old boy system or there's something wrong with this and I'm going to make a difference. So I'm, I'm wiping it out from the ground up and we're starting over. They have the power to do that coming into office. Right. I mean, I think that would kind of be political suicide to go from, you know, wipe out the entire department and start over. But it has happened. Uh, I've not seen it, but it has happened. Wow. That's that's wild. And so in, you know, I guess if you live in the county where you're a sheriff deputy, you are also then voting for someone to take that position that is and so i guess sheriff i guess the deputies are pretty quiet about who they're going to vote for at least outside of their close circles because you wouldn't want that information out i i assume it, it really depends that's that's what everyone's kind of advised to do but you have your deputies that are real supportive of candidates and that's who they 100% want to come in and feel it come in so they'll put signs in their yards or pass out literature and Whatever happens after the fact happens. Wow. Okay. Super interesting. Yeah, that's that's completely uh, different and definitely uh, would add a level of uh, interesting, um, yeah. I don't even know what you call it, interesting uh, things uh, in, in those uh, election years. Uh, and it, it creates challenges for people like me. Like I'm a very proactive officer. I, I really enjoy getting out there and stopping cars and getting dope and, and working on those levels. But you worry at the same time, if all of a sudden you get a whole slew of complaints coming in and the public starts not liking it, you worry like, well, is the next guy coming in? Is he not going to like because I got all these complaints? Is he going to understand I was doing my job? And it does create a, just an extra layer of stress to the job. Yeah. Yeah. Because oftentimes those officers that are the most aggressive um, and that are engaged in proactivity are getting a lot of complaints mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the complaints that anyone gets in law enforcement are generally coming from uh, people who are engaged in criminal activity. That's just generally how it works. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Um, so when it comes to running for sheriff, can anyone run for that position or do you need uh, certain uh, schooling, certain certain uh, parameters, certain things to be able to run for that position, or is that pretty much open to the public to run for? So my understanding of it, and I, I could be wrong, but I've always been led to understand that you don't need to have a law enforcement background or anything like that to run for sheriff. You just have to be able to win the hearts and minds of the voters. So you could really have someone get into that position then that really does not understand law enforcement or anything about it. Correct. And I mean, I've been blessed in the fact that that's never happened. Everyone that I've served under has already been at one time or another, an employee of the agency I actually work for. So, but in theory, now most of the public, I don't know that they would vote for somebody that has no clue how to 
be a law enforcement. I could see it, I guess, maybe happening. But most people, when they add their credentials to their campaign, all this thing, it's, you know, been in law enforcement X amount of years, done this X amount of years, so that people feel like they will properly police their county. Right, right, which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So just a little background on your area. What the the area that you work in there in uh, Lincoln County, how how big is that county pop and, and what's the population there? So the Lincoln County is about 300. I think it's 307 exactly square miles. And there's roughly 86,000 people for that entire that entire county. Right. And so that is super, super rural. Um, I mean, to put that in perspective, Lancaster City, uh, from which I retired here in Pennsylvania, was approximately seven square miles and had 60,000 people. So you're talking about 300 more square miles than Lancaster City and only 20,000 more people spread out uh, um, over those uh, 307 square miles. So really rural area. Um, what, What is it like? patrolling an area like that, that, um, I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? How close is your backup? How do you mentally prepare for doing a lot of things, probably almost everything on your own? What, what's that look like on a day in and day out? Well, you, you try to have backup. I mean, you try as best you can for these, um, domestic disturbances and these fights and these kind of things. You do your best to try and have another officer go with you. So usually for like a domestic disturbance, we try to have two because that's all that's likely going to be available. There'll be a third on the way, but he could be anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes away. Um, But most of the time you prepare yourself by just being ready to be the only one that's going to be there, learn how to talk to people, learn how to handle people. Um, A lot of it comes down to communication skills, because if you can't talk to people, you can find yourself in a hurt very quickly with no one else there to back you up. So the area that you work, do you have like a, a certain um, sector or quadrant of uh, this area that you are responsible for covering or are there multiple guys in the segment of the county that you cover? So the west end of the county is what I is where I'm assigned to. And in the west end, they've split it up into four different zones. So, you have, so the west end has basically zone one, two, three, and four. And um, they're very large zones, and I'm the only one responsible for zone one, and you hope that the zone four or the zone three guy is close enough to come over and sort of uh, back me up if I need it. But there's, there's parts of the county where it's spread out so much that I could get a call in the corner of, one of, my, of zone one, and no one else is near there because it's just far away from everybody else. It's just the way it goes. Right. And so you could be on a call for, like you said, 10 to 20 minutes before you could get back up. Yeah, I, I have actually been to a trailer park where I have been in a physical confrontation with somebody, and my closest backup was eight minutes away So when I called for help. Wow. And can you just talk about that a little bit? Like what, you know, when you say physical confrontation, what did that entail? So the, the call specifically was for a um, domestic disturbance, which is very common where I work. Um, and it was in a trailer park that was pretty well known to the sheriff's office as having to go to numerous times a week. Um, and so when I checked in route to this, obviously the next deputy saw that and he checked in route as well. But we have to understand he's in his respectable zone, which is not possibly nearby. 
Um, I pulled into the driveway. The male came out, and he was already agitated at my presence. And he ran up to my car. I gave multiple commands to stop. He didn't stop. I grabbed a hold of him to place him in handcuffs, and he we ended up having a fight where we it went to the ground, and I was able to hold him down long enough to get to my radio and call out and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm actively fighting one. I need backup. And the officer that was backing me up radioed back with his location that he was en route, and I knew I was familiar with it and knew that it was, it was <laughs> a long ways out. So it was just one of those, you know, man up and handle it until someone else can get there. Right. And how were you able to get him uh, into custody on your own? Or did you basically just have to kind of hold him in a position until you're well, out there? The real problem was I was able to eventually get him into handcuffs. But the woman that called 911 actually ran out and began attacking me during that process, too. I guess she loved him enough to come out and protect him after the confrontation happened. So the right. the problem, the danger became the fact that I was physically tied up with one individual while the second one began attacking me while I was waiting for my backup. But I was able to eventually overpower him enough to get him in handcuffs and then handle her as well. And actually the dust had settled and everyone was in handcuffs before my backup was able to get there. And they, I mean, they were getting there as quick as they could. Yeah. That's uh that is a long time. That yep. is a long time. I, you know, the experiences I've had, um, you know, primarily working in Lancaster city, now working in an area that's a little more rural, but, um, you know, your backup, if your backup takes a minute to get to you, that's like a lifetime. And usually our backup was, you know, less than a minute out. Um, no matter what we were doing, usually within seconds, 30 seconds or so you had someone that was able to, to be there and help you out. So, um, yeah, it's like, I guess for me, like, I think the mental preparation for that would be a really different exercise, I think, than what I was used to. Um, and I think the ability, I think I'm always amazed at the ability of, of officers and deputies like yourself who work in really rural areas like that and are waiting a long time for backup to be able to talk to people. Uh, I think, you know, officers such as yourself are much better at doing that than officers who work in urban areas where they don't need to rely on that as much. And I think too, you start, when you work in a rural area, you start really becoming a, becoming good at seeing where a situation is leading to, right? Like you, you start talking to people and if you start to think, okay, this is going to end up in a physical confrontation, you learn how to put that off as long as you can until backup gets closer. Whereas if you know you have a backup coming down the road in five seconds, you're more liable to jump on them and try and get them in, in custody. Right. And I think too, in an urban area, um, there were times where you knew uh, someone needed to get arrested. And I think sometimes you kind of push that action because you're like, hey, the, this, the, the way this problem is going to get solved is arresting this person. And so you just tend to know that you have that help there right away. So you kind of push the action a little faster. Uh, than you would have needed to maybe. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and that, yeah, it's, it's just a different feel when you know, Hey, this is going to go in this direction, but I, I need to kind of hold this off as long as possible. I think you could just become a lot more diplomatic in how you talk to people. Um, mm. and, and there's areas like that here in our County and in, in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. I know, you know, they're the state police handle areas where, 
you know, they, they could be waiting 10, 20 minutes for, for backup. So there are areas like that here in our county. But, um, but yeah, what you're describing, I think, is, is kind of like a, a really, really wild. Because I'm sure you don't always have all those uh, sectors covered, too, between people having off work. And Correct, I'm sure there's yeah. times where you, you could have someone two sectors away that would yeah. be your closest cover. And that, and that's something that happens too. You know, you have one guy on vacation and, you know, you go to a call and you realize, well, I'm at the corner of a zone, not only that I'm not used to working, but I know the guy that normally is on his way is, uh, on vacation. So it's up to whoever happens to be the next closest to get to me. Yeah. And I think th- doing it this way out in more rural communities, you are also incredibly aware of how outnumbered you are. Um, especially out, you know, down here in the South. A lot of these backwoods communities, they're the same families that live there. So if you go mm-hmm. to a house and you engage in a physical confrontation at the front door of a house, you need to immediately be aware that, you know, the family's probably running over from the next house is over to also help, not you, <laughs> help him. So right. you are always aware of just being outnumbered all the time and who's around you and what houses is, you know, the guy in the next trailer over, is he looking out his window watching you? You know, you, you just, you, you develop a constant sense of, you know, who else is going to be engaged in this if this goes south. Right. And I think you probably get really good at, like you said earlier, just being able to diffuse situations um, with with your words and and how you talk and, and, and what you do. So um, actually, I think even your brother was just sharing a story with me the other day where you had someone that was given I think you had actually gone to cover another deputy on a call and he was, he was giving you guys a hard time. And, uh, you basically were just like, Hey, I I'm getting lunch in, you know, two minutes. So, um, I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I, I have so many of those situations. I don't know which one he's <laughs> referring to exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds right. I can't think of which one he'd be. Yeah, it, I I think he I think he mentioned it was you know some some guy who didn't want to uh, let you guys into the house and you needed to go into the house for some reason to check on someone it's like a check on the welfare domestic type thing and he was uh, he was refusing to let you in or uh, thought you guys were going to take his guns or something like that and and you were just like hey yeah, I, I got to get lunch record. here in like ten ten minutes so yeah let's, that let's just do this that, I know which one he's referring to now that. It was a guy, it was a 911 hang up. And then the, the caller apparently called back and there was a female on the line. Well, when the deputy went there to make contact, it was a male that answered the door. And inevitably, um, I don't know how it is in Pennsylvania, but they're pretty Second Amendment enthusiastic here in North Carolina. Um, and he was claiming that we were just trying to get into his house to see what kind of guns he had. And we were going to take his guns. And I essentially told him, like, I that requires a lot of paperwork and I have a really good lunch waiting for me. So if we could just see she's okay and go home, I'd really, really like that. <laughs> that was essentially all. And he was like, well, all right, if that's the case, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just little things like that where, you know, some officers would run their mouth and end up getting themselves into, into a situation. But yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's definitely a different, um, I think sometimes guys, or, or officers who work in urban areas kind of get this chip on their shoulder. Um, and for sure, uh, they, they, uh, they definitely have generally a higher call volume 
mm-hmm. and, and they have, they get a lot of experience. But I think, you know, one thing I saw that I always tried to not do was this chip on my shoulder that I knew better uh, because I saw these officers who were out in these more rural areas that were doing things on their own and with little or no backup. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you can have a chip on your shoulder. You can talk a tough game, but you also have backup at, to help you immediately. Um, it's it's a it's a different thing when you don't have that. And uh, so I always tried to keep my level of respect for deputies such as yourself or officers uh, such as yourself that work in these really rural areas with little to no backup or or just backup that's a far way off. Hey, that's that's uh that takes some guts to to do some of that stuff. Hey Ken. <laughs> I I think I think the the, the pro the city guys and, and that I have since I have worked in the city for a little while, the you you get a lot of things that your rural guys or your country more country patrol guys don't get to see. Um and I don't know, I, I mentioned to you one time like that that's where you gotta be careful too with um the Mayberry mindset that I call it, where you just, you don't think because you're in a country area that nothing happens or a rural area that nothing happens like in the big city when in fact, a lot of times that stuff does come to visit. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, I even noticed that, you know, in the city between your officers that work day work who are set day work and set night work, your officers that work set day work. Sometimes I felt like their tactics um, were lacking um, because day work just, was a different flavor than night work. And then your guys on your officers on night work um, tended to just kind of be on edge all the time because all they dealt with were people who were high and drunk all night long um, and they were getting in more fights and, and stuff like that. So yeah, even, even when you're working time of day uh, can play a role into that, I think as well. So Yeah. Um, just, just super interesting, super, uh, different to, to hear kind of what, what you're dealing with in, in kind of out there in the sticks, but, um, what, uh, I, I kind of wanted to go back here a little bit, and this is something I always ask all my uh, guests who are in law enforcement, what caused you to get into this calling? Why did you want to do it? Well, I know every officer says, oh, to help people. And I think there was a part of me that did want to help people. Um, but I, I have always sort of been enamored with the uh, good versus evil mentality. And I always thought, well, I know there's evil in this world. I know there's bad in this world. And I mean, how amazing is it that there's actually a position created where you get to push back against that evil and get paid to do it? Yeah. And I, I wanted to be that guy out there on the front lines that when something really bad happened or someone that they, no one else really wanted to have to deal with or mess with because he was such a bad person that I was actually um, capable and trained to handle that. That just fascinated me. And did you have any other family members that were in law enforcement or kind of pushed you in that direction? No. I mean, I have family members that were in law enforcement, but I've never really spoken with them about it. I, I don't, I don't even think I had friends in law enforcement. This was something completely independent that I just really, really wanted to get into. Okay. And did you grow? Did you grow up in the North Carolina area? Correct. No, I did not. Well, oh, you didn't. I, I grew up in two different states. So I was born in New Hampshire, 
lived there for a period of time and then moved to North Carolina where I've lived a longer period of life here in North Carolina. Do you live in the county where you patrol as well? I do, which is another another challenge for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um you living in a small rural area, you tend to see the people you deal with while you're out in the the grocery stores and stuff like that. Does living in the area you patrol help you at all either? Or do you find it's mostly a negative thing? I don't know that it helps me. I don't really know that it's even that negative. It, it's convenient. <laughs> but as right. far as the actual function of the job, I would say the biggest, like I said, drawback is there's a chance, you know, you tussle with somebody on a Thursday and then Friday when you go to buy groceries with your family, there's a chance he's standing in the aisle somewhere. Right. Um, but there's the advantage, I guess, would be you, you're really familiar with the area you patrol because you live in that area. You're familiar with who's supposed to be there. You know who belongs and who kind of who doesn't. And you know how to how to navigate the roads efficiently because you're very familiar with the area. Right. Have you ever had a situation like that when you were off duty where you ran into someone that it became uncomfortable? Yeah. And actually, it's funny you should ask that. It happened. I think it was either last month or the month before, ran into a guy we deal with on a regular basis at a the, um, hardware store. And uh, he stood there and mouthed off at me for a while and called me a couple names, said I was a, you know, I'm trying to censor this, a bigger wimp without a badge than I was with one. Right. And so I just basically had to tell him, like, look, if, if we're going to do this, let's just do it now because I don't have all day to sit here and, you know, argue with you and be intimidating. and. He made the decision, I guess, to walk out and get in his car and peel out the parking lot. So, but that's that's just an example of multiple times that you run into people like that. Right now, was uh, your family with you, or any of your family members with you when this happened? Well, <laughs> the Lord was good to me there because my wife and two boys were actually out in the car waiting. They had made the decision to stay there, so I was in there by myself this time. Yeah, but yeah. you know, my my wife and I actually have code words and kind of exercises that if we're in a grocery store. And she's pushing the cart or I'm pushing the cart and I see something that's going to be a problem that we say a key word and she diverts and I stay there by myself. It's something mm-hmm. we as a family have kind of worked through. Yeah. No, um, uh, my wife, Lauren, and I, we, we've done the same thing. Um, if I tell her to stay, she knows what that means. If I tell her to get away from me, uh, she also knows what that means and what she's supposed to do. Uh, started broaching it a little bit with my kids. I don't want to freak them out, but they're also to the age now where, uh, you know, I've talked to them about, you know, what certain things mean. If, if daddy tells you something, uh, this is what you're, what you should do, either get behind me and hang on to my belt or get as far away from me as possible and, and go to another trusted adult. So, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, if you're in law enforcement, you have to think through and deal with, or you should be. If you're not, uh, then you won't be prepared when it happens, and it will happen. Mm-hmm. You will, you will, regardless of where you work, you will run into uh, someone you've arrested or dealt with. It has happened to me multiple times over my career, yep. and uh, it is, uh, you know, thankfully, it's never even gotten as bad as what you just described with someone mouthing off to me. I've been followed um, at a mall, local mall here. I I was followed one time for a little bit, but, um, and I've walked into, you know, just a pizza shop and have had someone right inside the door that I, that I've arrested, uh, call me out by name and, you know, 
luckily, or, you know, it was, it was decent conversation, but yeah, you just never know. You, you have the chance of running into people that you've dealt with. So, and I think that really the most awkward ones are when I was working in narcotics, I have run into like, um, CIs (laughs) and I don't don't really have much of an explanation for them when, you know, you're all cleaned up and walking with a family and they spot you. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a different world too. Um, yeah. One thing I did want to uh, ask you about is, you know, we talked about uh, your, you know, where you're working at right now, but you also worked for the Charlotte Transit Police uh, for a period of time. Uh, what what was like the main mission of that department and, and what did they patrol? And uh, I'm assuming that was in the city of Charlotte. Yeah, that that was centralized in downtown Charlotte. Um, and what that was is. All of your public transportation, your buses, your light rails, your all of those um, facets of uh, public transportation were had to have law enforcement. Um, And the city of Charlotte, to my understanding, didn't really want to take that on. So, CATS, which is what they're called, the Charlotte stood for Charlotte Andrea Area Transit System, um, contracted out a privatized police department to do it. Um, And so I. It would, the job was offered to me to help do that. And I thought, well, you know, it'll be as easy as helping people get on and off trains and making sure no one does anything stupid. So I, I went ahead and signed up for it. It was much more complicated than that. But their, their big mission was public safety um, in all these facets of public transportation. So you had officers on foot patrolling all of your light rail stations. You had officers that patrolled every single bus station. And then your big centralized transit system where all everything came together and the majority of your public went to to go somewhere had five or six uh, police officers and a sergeant that stayed focused there 24-7. Okay, so you kind of had experience then in a very urban environment and a very rural environment. Which one of those environments did you or do you like the best or maybe that's kind of a loaded question since you work in one of them right now but well i'm a, a much more of a country guy i really enjoy the country much more than i do the city um there was things that was nice about being in a city there's obviously more convenience you know things like food and stuff's open all the time and there's people around all the time and we talked about your backups always right around the corner and the call volume's heavier so you get to stay busy doing more things but the the element is completely different where at, you know, where I work now, you're dealing with much more uh, rural people, your trailer parks, your, your mill housing, um, even farmers and farm hands and stuff like that. Uh, whereas Charlotte, I was working the night shift. Um, and it was pretty much after your respectable sort of your people that were using public transportation for a legitimate purpose had gone home for the day. And I was left with uh, large populations of homeless and gang members and those kinds of things um, were basically the only type of people that we dealt with at night. So it was a completely different scenario. Yeah. And did you guys um, have full police powers? Like, were you arresting and, and doing criminal charges or could you arrest and then you just turned it over to um, the Charlotte Police Department, Charlotte Mecklenburg or, or whatever they're called out there? Um, how did but that work? We had um, complete and total police power over the jurisdiction given to us by the transit system. Okay. So as long as we were on our you know, transit system, we had every power that any police officer anywhere has. 
sworn with the state, same training, the same, everything was the same. We just could not go and instigate things outside of the transit system property. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, when you worked for that department, you were promoted up to sergeant at one point. How many, how many guys, how many officers did you oversee then? Well, luckily for me, they were incredibly short-staffed when they promoted me to sergeant. And so what ended up happening is they made me a supervisor over all of the transit system and all the platforms and then all of the light rail police officers. So you're dealing with the six police officers in the transit system. And then I think it was like uh, eight, somewhere between eight to 12 um, guys out on the light rail. So they were calling me asking for help or advice or, you know, needing something. And they could be, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes away by car because they're on the light rail. But I was also responsible for the six guys that were down in the transit system, you know, getting into whatever they're getting into there. Right. So was that the biggest challenge? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a lot of guys. Did you have corporals or any, anyone under you that, that helped? No, I was, I was the, uh, the solo one in charge, you know. But I mean, as any good leader, you find your guys with the strengths and you encourage them to take up leadership roles too. So inevitably there was guys there that were good enough at the job that some of the other guys sought their counsel and their help and I allowed that to happen so that I would not be trying to you know, run a hundred different directions all the time. That's a lot of officers to, uh, it's hard to effectively lead that many people, especially when they're in different locations like that. Um, so I'm sure that was a, a challenge at, at times. Um, is that, is that a position, the Sergeant position, is that a position you think you'd, you'd want to get back into again at any point? Oh yeah. I, I loved, I loved leading. I loved being able to sort of run things the way that I felt was the best and safest for um, all the guys that I was with. Um, I enjoyed the challenge of it, sort of the problem solving, because that's what, you know, being a sergeant sometimes is. Everyone's got a problem and you you learn to um, sort of navigate problems and come up with solutions. Right. So you've worked in that. I mean, in your 10 years in law enforcement or, or almost 10 years in law enforcement, you've really done quite the gamut of different jobs. Um, you know, you've worked in a patrol function as you do right now. You've held positions on the drug task force. I know that you're really interested in um, gang intelligence stuff. Yep. Um, which, which one of those positions or which one of those things have you or, or did you enjoy uh, the most thus far? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed um, the narcotics, the drug task force and the vice stuff. Um, and how long did you do that? I did that for about two and a half years. Okay. Um, and then, and then I just, it was one of those positions that's just not conducive to having a child born. Yeah. So, I, you know, to me, being on patrol offers a, uh, more steady schedule, which was very appealing at the time and still kind of is, but I, Barring those sequence events, I probably would still be doing uh, the narcotics position. I just, I loved the cases. I, I have a passion for pushing back against um, narcotics use and distribution in the community. Um, and really, that's even where the gang thing ties into. The reason why I have such an interest in um, some of these organized groups in our areas because a lot of them are the ones pushing um, your narcotics and human trafficking and all that stuff. Right. 
right? And in that role, were you strictly plain clothes? Yeah, I was a plain clothes officer. Unless we were um, hitting a house, obviously, then we would be suited up in some kind of identifiable um, uniform so that you know people knew who we were. But the day to day, I was always plain clothes. I did both casework and undercover work. Okay, and can you just like talk about that work a little bit for for people who don't understand it or know it? Um, you know, I've I've done some of that work. I I was not a you know. I did like very street level crime, uh, you know, drug trafficking, street level stuff. But the task force that you were on, were you, were you guys, you guys were probably trying to climb the ladder and, and, and get your uh, medium to higher level dealers. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's correct. So the way our narcotics unit, the purpose of it was to, like you said, climb the ladder. So you, you sort of start at a street level narcotics situation and through the use of investigative tools, um, surveillance equipment, uh, the use of undercover officers, the use of confidential informants, um, you attempt to continue to follow the chain of uh, narcotics distribution to get to the highest level possible to take it out from the top. Um, and we had a bunch of tools. We had multiple um, officers that were sworn in with federal agencies. So they're call I don't know I guess I don't know if it's everywhere in the United States but here they call them task force officers or TFOs. Yep. TFOs, yep. Yep, they're sworn into like Homeland Security or um, DEA or um, the FBI and they have credentials that when we get to a certain level it allows us to start hitting the federal um, federal charges so they can actually go out of state um, because a lot of these narcotics guys these guys distributing uh, hardcore drugs to our communities are getting it from places not local. Right. Um, and so, so having those TFOs, those t- uh, task force officers that are uh, sworn in at the federal level, you're, you are able to expand your jurisdiction and carry those investigations over your jurisdictional lines just as a local police officer. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so in that role, you know, you're playing clothes and you alluded to this earlier when you said uh, very uncomfortable running into confidential informants. Um, so in that role, a lot of times the people that you were, uh, using to effectively investigate people who are engaged in the, the sale and trafficking, uh, don't always know that you're a police officer. They're, they're unwittingly helping you. Um, so I assume that's what you were talking about those times where you would run into people who didn't really know who you were. Correct. Or it's either, well, the CIs, my confidential informants knew who I was because they came to me for information, or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I went to them for information. They, they, they helped me, whether it be to work off charges or to whatever. Um, but the, the awkward parts are when you're with a CI and then you interact with a distributor who then sees you outside with your family right. and has no clue you're you know, law enforcement. And there you are cleaned up and walking with, you know, a family member or something in the store that you have to, you have to be quick on your feet if they come over to speak with you. Yeah. Yeah. Has that ever happened to you? I have seen someone I have done undercover for while I was with my family. Um, the Lord was good in that instance too, where we were able to just sort of stay out of the way, stay out of sight and they made their way out of the store and we could sort of continue. So I didn't, that time I didn't have a confrontation with him. I have had a CI 
I'll say this. <laughs> I went to get a haircut. And when I walked in, my CI was in line um, getting a haircut as well with the very person that he was helping us <laughs> um, <Investment>. get. Yeah. <laughs> it was just one of those things where you walk in. I was like, yeah, my hair's not that long. I think I'm going to leave. You know, because he turns okay. around and wants to say what's up and, you know, high five and introduce me. And I'm like, this is this is not going to be good. This is just awkward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, you're completely you have you have no no one knows where you are, what you're doing uh, on your team. And nope. uh, now you're now you're uh, doing a meet and greet with a drug dealer. Yeah. On a Sunday afternoon and in a barber shop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you shared that. You know, doing doing the drug work, um, you were really into trying to eradicate that from the community. Um, you know, you've shared with me that you uh, completely reject the idea that um, the engaging in drugs, the trafficking, the use of them is a victimless crime. And you you uh, you've had personal experiences with things that that have driven you to that conclusion, and I I would agree with you. Um, and one of those stories was a uh, a baby that you had die uh, from being exposed to drugs. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, that incident and and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. The the call originally came in as a. Um... Uh, it was a nine one one. I think it was an open line or something. And the communication said, you know, they could hear female saying something in the background, which is pretty, pretty common. We get a lot of those. And so, um, I went into the house. Well, first I knocked on the door. The door was not closed all the way, so it was unsecure. So I pushed the door the rest of the way to make sure everything was okay. And what I observed was a uh, male and female both passed out on a couch. Um, both the male still had a needle in his arm. And he was completely passed out from heroin use. Um, the female had, in it, I guess, shot herself up and then the needle had fallen. And while they were worried about getting high on heroin, they had left their baby to crawl around the house by itself. Well, I guess that baby had, in the process of crawling around, exposed itself and become um, exposed to the contents of that needle. Whether it, it looked like, crawling like in the knee or something you know like the baby's mm. not stepped but whatever crawled onto the needle and injected itself with a little bit of whatever's in there and when i saw the baby the baby was just laying there and you know the baby was awake but it was he was, he was very sluggish um very like sleepy and i knew immediately what had happened i called for ems and i called for backup and i picked up that child and i'll never one of those things, you know, as officers, you see, you see horrible things all the time, but there's certain horrible things that you just, you never forget. They stick with you. You go to sleep, you close your eyes, you see it all the time. And I looked at this baby and I remember praying, you know, God, please just get EMS here quick enough. Like, just get them here, get them here, get them here. Um, and inevitably EMS was not able to get there in time. And I held the baby until the baby passed. And I, at that exact moment, I just, I developed a just strong hatred for what narcotics do to people and drug use and that just that culture of um drug use especially hard drugs yeah do you know do you know what was in that needle was it heroin was it fentanyl like what was in there um it was heroin i don't know if there was fentanyl in the heroin or not the detectives inevitably took over the investigation 
Um, okay. And so it was handed over to them. But based on everything I've seen, it was it was going to be heroin. Yeah. Did the uh, did the both the parents survive their overdose? Both parents their overdoses. Were, yep, they were given Narcan and they were fine. Okay. And um, were they charged in that case? Um, to my understanding, they were charged. Yes, they. Okay. I don't. I didn't follow up on it. I mean, as, as funny as it sounds, it was painful enough that I wanted nothing to do with that situation. Once I found out, you know, the baby was no longer even the equation. I didn't. I didn't want anything to do. There was just sort of a an anger and sort of a bitterness towards them that I just I didn't really want to follow up on it very much. I did a little yeah. bit just to keep myself from going back later. And and my understanding is they were they were charged, but I don't know the full outcome of the the trial. And how long did that incident happen before you got assigned to the drug task force? Uh years actually. Um, okay. It was not immediate after that, but what it what it did was sort of propel me into the mindset that any chance I had to push back against narcotics distribution, I was going to take it. So it, what it did is force me to be a proactive officer and, and really in my community seek out those who were actively moving around in my community, distributing and using hard narcotics. Yeah, it is interesting. You hear people uh, talk about it as a victimless crime. Um, but it does it does affect people. I've had people, uh, two guests on this episode who were heavily involved in drug use, and it definitely affected them and other members of their uh, families. Um, so yeah, when you hear when you hear that kind of that drumbeat of it being a victimless crime, that it should be treated differently, that we um, you know there there's been a, a big push. Uh, here in Pennsylvania to get rid of uh, mandatory minimums where uh, let's say you have a a certain amount of cocaine or a certain amount of heroin or whatever. um, It it no longer carries a mandatory sentence unless, you know, much higher levels do. But it used to be that, you know, when I, when I, back in like 2005 to 2008, uh, when I was on our city um, uh, vice unit, our selective enforcement unit as an officer, you had two grams of, of uh, crack or cocaine. You were looking at a mandatory two years state prison. That no mm-hmm. longer happens. Um, and and the, the mandatory minimums now have been pushed to much higher levels. So a lot of people that are being, you know, and people are like two grams, that's nothing. Well, two grams, that's like, that's a lot of money. And that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a decent amount of crack cocaine. So um yeah, what what's like what's your take on that? How do you respond to people when they say stuff like that? Well, first of all, I say that drugs are not a victimless crime because there's always a victim attached. Um, I can't tell you how many houses and trailers and different things I've gone into where mom and dad are um, addicted to meth because methamphetamine is the big thing here in North Carolina. Um, okay. We're dealing with just an absolute epidemic of methamphetamine. Um, and they become so dedicated to their addiction that you see the suffering of their children. And I think that's really the biggest victims in drug use are going to be children. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've gone in and seen four-year-olds opening up the refrigerator trying to fix themselves food because they don't know what it's like to have mom and dad fix it for them because their mom and dad is, are too busy um, trying to get high or get their next fix. Um, we, we have seen 
I'll tell you this, there was a house I went to uh, not too long ago when I was on night shift and the kids were up and it was like two, three in the morning. And I said, what are you, I went to the bedroom and they're sitting there and I said, what are y'all doing up? I said, well, if we go to sleep, we just got this new video game system. I think it was a PlayStation. They said, if we go to sleep, mom and dad are going to come in and sell it, take it and sell it. And Mm -hmm. I just thought, I just thought, oh, that's, that's gut wrenching. I just, it's, there's always a victim attached to it. Um, and I think as a, as a culture, we've sort of breeded this thing where everyone's of, you know, deserves to have their vices. And I think that's why you're seeing all these places with um, safe areas to shoot yourself up with safe needles and, you know, come on in and feed your addiction. You can do it in a safe manner. We just, it's, it's, it's we've just breeded a culture that just says, you know, you, you should be able to have your vices. And, and they come down on law enforcement a lot of times because they, they, they think law enforcement is just being bullies and charging people. Uh, for things that don't have true victims attached to them, which to me is a very small world view. Yeah. I think that story that you just shared is extremely sad um, because basically those kids, that PlayStation was their parent and, mm-hmm. and that parent being a inanimate object, a yeah. video game system was they recognized it would be taken away uh, if they fell asleep. I mean, that's just incredibly sad. And that type of stuff just, oh man, it just wears on you. It wears on you to, to be in situations like that um, on, a, on a regular basis and, and see kids in those situations. And um, I don't know what it was. I, I, maybe it was just you kind of giving me a heads up about the story about the, the baby that overdosed and died. Um, but I, I remembered going into a house one time and I literally, I forgot about this story and uh, I remembered it just a couple days ago leading up to this episode uh, of, of this mom passed out drunk high on the other side of a door at an apartment in the city. And we had to like push our way in because she was against the door the door was partially open, but we couldn't, we had to basically like push her into the apartment with the door so we could get in. And, uh, yeah, we ended up taking protective custody of a baby in that house who was covered. I mean, covered in some sort of insect bites. I had mm. never, it looked like the kid had, um, chicken pox, yeah. uh, like the worst case of chicken pox you could ever imagine, but they were insect bites all over. Um, that little baby's body. And I remember taking, we had to take protective custody of that baby. So you just see the kids, the kids in these situations are just, uh, they're, they're, man, it's just, it's just bad. Like, yeah. And you know, doing undercover work, I, I can't tell you how many times I would walk into a house, you know, or even just seeing surveillance equipment of it. Someone walks into a house and then there's a child just sitting there on the couch. You know, minding his own business, reminding her own business, and they're chopping up uh, crystal meth for a deal. And then you just think, what kind of life are they giving these kids? I mean, these the kids cannot make choices for themselves. Yeah, and that weighs on that weighs on you um, throughout your career um, mm-hmm. because you you see that day in and and day out whether you just want to, you know. I, I feel like I don't know. I I think in our culture we throw around the word trauma a lot. Um, you know, obviously trauma does exist. Those kids are experiencing trauma. Um, you know, the people that 
are engaged in that activity, a lot of times they have experienced some sort of trauma that has driven them into a point of addiction. Uh, the officers that are engaged in it, uh, I don't know, we, we throw it around a lot, but regardless, there is wear and tear uh, of the job that affects how officers interact with the public. And, and you brought you brought this up to me before this episode that that, that wear and tear um, you know, really affects how officers can or do interact with the public sometimes. Can you just, like, I thought it was a really valid point. Can you flesh that out with me a little more and, and talk to me about what you meant by that? Yeah, I think there's actually multi, probably facets of that, um, that statement there. I, I think, number one, when you are introduced to just the depravity of man, especially when it comes to just drug addiction and just how horrible human beings can be to other human beings. And that, that's really what was most shocking for me getting into this career, not being exposed to it prior, not living a life, seeing a lot of things, but just realizing how horrible and dark mankind is to each other, you know, especially living in sin without the Lord. I, I find that you start, if you're not careful, to lose your empathy towards people um, in these conditions. So the, these people might um, come to you and they might, they're trying to talk to you. And I, and I found the struggle at the time being like, this is just another person abusing their kids, using drugs. And you have to really, really focus on not giving over to that mindset completely, like really listening to what people are saying and really, really understanding that they, somewhere deep inside, there's someone's son or daughter inside this person talking to you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you do that? How do you personally do that? Uh, honestly, it's sometimes it boils down to mental preparation. So if I know, like back on the patrol side of things, I know I'm going to a house that I've dealt with these people before and I know what they're into and I know their lifestyle. I, I prepare myself on the way to say, okay, try to be empathetic with these individuals. Go in with the mindset that they may really have this time a legitimate need and they may legitimately want help and, and prepare yourself. I've yet to really have that come to fruition. But for the most part, I'm still, I guess that's all I can really chalk it up to is just mental preparation. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really difficult um, because you can't, it's, you know, I've talked to Lauren about this. You can't take on everyone's garbage. Right. So you have to try to not care too much, but at the same time, not get too hardened to it that you treat people uh, in a way that is not biblical as as a Christian or as a you know as a believer, right? Uh, which is just a really really uh, challenging um, thing thing to do. And I think the other thing that makes it hard is you have to train yourself to not act angrily based on what you see happening, right? You still have to continuously carry a face of control and um, almost a neutral perspective. So when you go in there and you see these kids being abused, you see malnourished two and three year olds laying on the couch, and you still are required to treat individuals with the same level of dignity and respect as somebody who can't find their car in the Walmart parking lot. 
And that, that also affects the way you treat people because it really distorts things because that's not human nature to not react to seeing those things. Right. Right. And because you see it a lot, you start, you start assigning uh, those attributes. You start assigning the worst attributes of people to everyone you deal with. Yep. And, and I think you, you, you can easily fall into the trap of every single call you get, every single person you have to deal with um, is just another idiot. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's, it's easy to fall into that trap. And I think that's why what you said is so important to be able to just take a step back. And for, you know, someone like yourself and, and myself, remember that, you know, this is a, a another image bearer of God, someone who's been created by him, uh, regardless of their actions and what they're doing. Um, they, they still deserve, you know, uh, dignity and, and respect. It doesn't mean that we ignore what they've done or not hold them accountable or not arrest them or not, you know, have to use force against them, but you still have to treat them in a way that um, lets them know that you believe they were actually uh, created by God. And it's easy to sit here uh, on this end of the mic and for you to sit there and for us to talk about that. But in the moment, it is really hard not to uh, kind of knock people down pegs and not view them in that way because yep. of the things they're doing and engaged in or the way they're treating their kids or just uh, really, really terrible decisions they've made. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, I don't know how much exposure in you know that area you deal with methamphetamine, um, but in the meth world, which is a whole culture here, the, the selling of it, the using it, um, one thing that's attached to methamphetamine addiction is uh, extreme like sexual deviancy. Of, okay. And if you research what kind of methamphetamine does to the body, it really, has, it really causes that drive to be skyrocketed. So you're, you're dealing with people engaged in a very sinful, immoral, and just debauchery lifestyle. And it, it, like you, you hit the nail on the head, it is hard to see them in that moment as uh, image bearers of God. I mean, you look and say, well, look what you're involved in. Like, it's inhuman, the things you're doing. And I'm obviously not going to get into it on the show, but the, the items you find on their persons when you're searching them or in their vehicles or in their houses, you're just like, oh, it takes a toll on you. Yeah. In the city, we didn't have, I mean, we, we were arresting some people with meth. Um, it, there wasn't a lot of meth. It was a lot of heroin and fentanyl, um, crack, um, cocaine, that type of thing. Uh, I think the area I'm working in now, there's a lot more meth. Um, and my understanding, and you, you obviously know a lot more about it than I do, but my understanding is it is even more uh, addictive and destructive than heroin. I mean, I've talked to people who have done heroin that are addicted the moment they try it, uh, but I've heard meth is even more addictive than that, which I don't even know how that's possible. Is that, have you heard that? Is it, you know, have you found that to be true? I don't know that I found it to be worse as much as I found it to be different, if that makes sense. Um, like your, your heroin user has to get 
uh, re-up or get high again every three to five hours. So mm-hmm. the danger there is that they are constantly on the look and on the move for something, which is where a lot of your property crimes and your thieving and all that stuff come from, because they have to feed that habit to avoid becoming incredibly sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you find with methamphetamine, you can buy, you can take three grams of it and be up for three days. Um, and most of our methamphetamine addicts, they won't eat or drink or take care of themselves or do sleep for three days straight until they mentally snap. Um, which also is incredibly dangerous. And that's why you see these big psychological outbursts with meth that you go to and they are seeing aliens and shooting guns at people that don't exist and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know that it's worse as much as it is just another another hard drug. Yeah, that, it is a lot different um, because, yeah, you're, you you hit the nail on the head there. You're, you're people who are addicted to heroin generally – um, are always seeking the next high. Um, and they are generally not, uh, I mean, they can be violent, but they don't tend to be as violent as, as someone who is using meth um, yeah. and staying awake. And, you know, even, even the fact of just staying awake for three days straight, that, that in and of itself will put you into a mental state where even if you weren't using drugs, you would probably be hallucinating um, yep. and starting to see things. But then you throw in a chemical, a poison into that. It just makes it uh, even worse and, and can make uh, them, them very dangerous. Is, are they, the meth addicts that you've dealt with are, do they tend to be the most dangerous people you come in contact with on a regular basis? The most, you know, yeah. uh, in my know, opinion, absolutely. They're the most unpredictable. They're the most angry. And um, something the way the methamphetamine reacts to their body, they, their pain tolerance is through the roof. Um, okay. So pain compliance, as you and I would use soft hand techniques, which would be like, you know, your wrist locks and pressure points and stuff, are pretty much out the window because they, they won't feel any pain. Um, and I, I ran into a situation probably 2018 maybe somewhere in that time frame um a few days before christmas where someone called in a um some methamphetamine sales going on they were sitting in their living room apparently watching the next trailer with binoculars and giving a play-by-play for our communication and when i arrived i ended up arriving right in the middle of that transaction um and i tried to place the driver under arrest well he had just uh, introduced some methamphetamine into his body right before I'd gotten there. And he, he flipped out and it took uh, a taser and two officers to get him in handcuffs. And at one point I had his hand behind his back and the, the back of his hand was about touching the top of his head, if that makes sense, behind his back. Yeah. And he was completely unfazed by it. And he was screaming, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Is that all you got? And that's after being tased and fought. So that's why they're so dangerous too, is they, they're not feeling the pain in addition to just not being rationally thinking. Right. And I think that's an important thing for, you know, to, to, uh, to talk about too. Like one thing that I get aggravated with is I hear people say, you know, uh, you know, officers were dispatched to a mental health call. And (laughs) why did, you know, why did, why did three people or why did three officers have to show up or why did five officers have to show up and this and that? 
the, the reason is because officers going don't know what else is on board with that person. Sure, there might be some mental health things going on, but are the mental health uh, concerns caused by the use of some sort of substance? Is the person having a mental health problem and also have a have some sort of substance on board that is going to make them uh, violent or or like you said, not feel pain? I mean, those are those are all the things that you know officers are dealing with on a day in day out basis. Um, and someone sees a clip on the news with one guy who supposedly just had mental health problems, and there's five officers there, and everyone's like losing their mind about it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and like you said, those types of things, you know, happen and you, you really don't, you really don't know what you're walking into. You really don't know what substances are being used and what the person's capable of or, or, you know, anything really, you're kind of going in blind to these situations. Yeah. And you don't know the temperament. And also the other guy that was in the car had warrants and he had also just hit or smoked some methamphetamine right before getting out with him. And it's just, like you said, you never know what you're you're getting yourself into. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously during this conversation, we've talked some about your, um, you know, your faith. I, I mentioned that you, you know, you're you're a man of faith. You're a brother in Christ. How does that, on a day in and day out basis, how does that impact uh, your job as a police officer and and how how you do the work? Well, I always hold to the. Um, the fact that whatever God has called me to do, I'm supposed to do it with all my might, all my soul, and all my mind. I'm supposed to work as hard as I can for His glory. I um, mean, I try to live by that, whether it be, you know, pulling a car over, whether it be my interaction with the public, whether it be um, working for the drug task force and working cases. I, I try to focus on the fact that I'm not just doing this for my own satisf- gratification, my own satisfaction. I'm trying to um, ultimately please the one who has called me to this profession. And that sort of sets me in the right mindset coming out the door at the beginning of shift, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, I, I, uh, that was one thing I like really struggled with at the beginning of my career. I think I was too concerned about doing the job for other people and not as concerned about doing the job for, for his glory. So I think that's a great mindset, um, a mindset to have. Do you, um, are there other officers on your in your agency that are believers that you talk to or that you have interaction with? There, there are a couple other officers that are believers. Um, unfortunately, we don't always, you know, line up schedule wise to interact with each other. Uh, but obviously, it's <laughs> it's refreshing when you do when you see each other in the hallway of the main office or whatever, and you could have that moment. Um, but there's there's not really a, a large group of people that are openly uh, professing Christ. Now, in the South, this is the Bible Belt. So I would say there's probably no one that doesn't attend church or have knowledge of, you know, some semblance of faith because it's everyone goes to church here in North Carolina. It's just the way it is. Um, And I think as a Christian, this is what I've always, I always tell other guys that are in law enforcement that have, that are saved and, and um, attempting to live out a God-filled life. It's just the pressure doesn't come from everything you see on um, the scenes, right? Not going to these different calls and these things. That's not as hard as 
the desire that we have as uh, men, especially for uh, camaraderie and the fear that if you don't participate in um, some of the things that your, your counterparts are doing, uh, that you will lack camaraderie because of your faith. And that, mm-hmm. that, that I think is the biggest challenge. And God has really been good to me where he's allowed me to be steadfast. I've never, I've not always been perfect. I've, I've there's been times, as you know, doing this job, you say things you shouldn't do, say, you do things you shouldn't do. But um, in the end, you, you try and live a life different than the rest of the, the guys that you work with. And you just, you overcome the fear of lack of camaraderie or that they won't want you to go do things with them. And that, that's probably the biggest challenge, I think, um, a Christian can face in this profession. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really, I mean, it's just a really rough environment. Yeah. There's no other way to put it. So, no. you know, whether it's, uh, you know, you name it, you're, whether it's language, uh, whether it's, you know, excessive drinking, you know, what, whatever it is, like guys and officers in the profession uh, deal with that stress in different ways. So I think one thing that was all, you know, has always been really difficult for me is just uh, language. Cause it's, mm-hmm. it, you, you, the people you, you are dealing with, um, on a regular basis, talk a certain way, the officers you work with on an everyday basis, talk a certain way. And you like literally hear it all day, all day long. Yep. And so that was always something I really, really struggled with, uh, was just, you know, day in and day out. Like, is my, how's my language? Like, what am I saying? How am I talking? Um, how am I treating other people? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and that's a challenge. And yeah, have you, have you ever had someone like a younger person who wants to get in law enforcement, who's a Christian come up to you and talk to you about it? And if you have, like, what have you shared with them or, or how have you encouraged them or told them in regards to getting into the profession and some things they should think about? Well, I don't know about getting into it as in they've not been hired yet. Um, but I have had a good number of people that have, that are new to the agency that are, are new to the profession, I should say, um, come to me and talk with me about, you know, living a godly life or an assemblance of it while working in this environment. And I, I really think it, it boils down to keeping, um, your Bible reading up and your prayer life up. I, I I'm a firm, firm believer that if you start to drop those things, other sin and other temptations will just start flooding you. Um, I, I think I always tell them, whatever you do, do not give up your Bible reading. Do not give up your prayer life, whatever that has to look like. And I know it's a struggle. Guys like me who work day shift, who are up at 430 in the morning, you know, right. it's really not an option to get up and read at 3 a.m., not be awake at the same time. So, <laughs> you know, so you you do things like get an app on your phone that's reading through the Bible on your phone and you play it in your car and you keep that in your mind. Um, and that, that's really the biggest advice. I mean, everything else kind of, the, the only other advice is hang out with Christian friends that are not cops. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I hate to be that way, but do not just hang out with cops ever. Just find a good circle of good Christian guys and hang out with them outside of work and lean on them. And that's what I've done too. Yeah, that was some of the best advice I got when I when I got on the job is uh, the training sergeant who hired me said, you know, whatever you do, don't just hang out with cops. Yeah. Keep your friends outside the job. 
and uh, make sure that you, you know, don't just surround yourself only by other cops. And that was really good advice. Um, the other thing I would, I would also just back up what you said, like being in the word uh, for me uh, toward the end of my career uh, in Lancaster city and also having kids help me with this is like memorizing scripture, mm. reading, you know, reading it, being in the word. But one thing that really helped, helped me a lot was memorizing specific passages uh, that I could bring to mind at any moment under any circumstance and, and uh, you know, repeat back to myself. Um, that was always, uh, always super, super helpful for me. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough profession. Um, as a Christian, but it's also a admirable one. And um, I definitely feel like more, uh, it, it's a profession that needs uh, people of high character, high integrity. Uh, and those people that have high character and high integrity, uh, who are also followers of Jesus Christ, I think, you know, are an asset to the job. Um, because, you know, whether you believe the Bible or not, it contains a way of living that is effective and helpful uh, to just life in general. And once you start moving away from biblical standards and trying to do things uh, based on your own truth, whatever that is, uh, you, you can quickly start running into problems. I, I, I don't know. I, I think, too, the biggest thing I hear from uh, believers that are also in law enforcement is that they see terrible things and they struggle with um, how there can be a God in the midst of those things they see. Um, and I can honestly say I, I've never struggled with that aspect of it. I've always, all it's done for me was confirm um, the depravity of man, which is laid out in the Bible. It's always confirmed the need for a Savior. And, and that was one thing I was able to overcome. From that perspective, I never was able to say, well, this is a horrible situation. Where is God in this place? Yeah. And I would totally agree with you. I've never struggled with that because for me, just like you said, it, it proves the depravity of man. It proves uh, the sin nature, the problem that we have as uh, people with sin and the solution to that sin. I think what's uh, interesting to me is not how how does God allow terrible things to happen? For me, the question is, how does God even allow us to live? Yeah. You know, based, you know, because of our sin, because of our constant uh, depravity, because of, of what we see, uh, because of, of what I do and what I'm capable of, how, how does, how does he allow me to live a holy God who cannot be around sin, who cannot see sin who cannot he he doesn't tolerate sin and and that's why the uh the gospel message i think is so powerful uh to me because uh and to every believer because it represents a way to be at peace with god not because of anything we have done but because of something uh christ did for us on the cross and so yeah i'm with you i never looked at the things that were happening on the job and was like, oh, how can God allow this? I always viewed it as like, I can't believe God allowed that person to live 
or I can't believe he allows me to live, you know, um, you know, there's, there's, there's hope, uh, in the midst of that sin, really that, that officers see every day. I think there's a lot of hope in the midst of that because it shows us God's patience, um, his long suffering and, uh, how he, uh, yeah, he's allowing people the opportunity to have that relationship with Christ and come in good relationship with him through uh, Jesus and what, what he's done for us. Yeah. And, and just as officers, you're constantly just waiting in the absolute filth of humanity, just continuously just bombarded. And you just see just how evil man is. And it, sometimes it does, it is healthy. I think for a law enforcement officer to step back and say, this, this is the world God died for. You know, this is, this is who he came to redeem. It sort of resets your mind, if you can, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And it helps, some, sometimes for me, it helps reset my perspective of people a little bit. Because like we talked about earlier, you're in it enough, you're just, you just stop, you almost stop looking at people as people if you're not careful. Right. Yeah, you do. Yeah. It's a, you, you wade through filth and garbage and, I don't know. I was always amazed at officers I worked with who didn't have a level of faith, who didn't believe, you know, outright denied, you know, um, any type of, of faith or, or Christianity. I, I, I never understood how they could keep going. Yep. It, that, that was more of a mystery to me than, than uh, you know, having a relationship with our heavenly father and still seeing all these horrible things. I could, I can make peace with that because the Bible presents a way to make peace with that. It explains it. Uh, but to not have any belief in God or, uh, you know, have no concept or understanding of that. I don't, I don't, I didn't, I never understood how officers could keep going if they, if they didn't have any, uh, world view that could ex- explain that or anchor. Yeah. Yeah. It's just super interesting to me. I think there's probably a little less stability there than um, they would like us to see. And I, I find that a lot by guys who come talk to me. And that, that is one of the things about being a believer is you find uh, other officers do come talk to you. Whether they want to believe or not, There's a I think there's a sense of need there when they see someone who's living different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had some really, really great conversations with friends of mine. I have, you know, that are on the job. I, I have a, a lot of officers who are on the job that I love dearly, um, care about them, uh, so much. Um, but you know, have, have chosen not to, not to bend their knee yet. And, uh, so I just keep talking to them and, you know, they keep talking to me. So mm. <laughs> that's, uh, that's uh, all all we can do. Just called to be uh, obedient to that end, anyways. Um, so, man, that was a a great conversation. A little like a a slight sermon there. So yeah. it'd be interesting. My see see how my numbers drop when we start talking about uh, the Bible and Jesus. <laughs> uh, I won't take the blame for it. <laughs> uh, I. It it is interesting. I wish I could see in my episodes. I guess if I, I guess that certain analytics do allow me to do that. 
to look how long people listen. But usually it just shows you how long people listen. It doesn't show you where in your episodes you lose listeners. Um, yeah. I always thought that would be interesting because I know a lot of, you know, I, I talk to people who listen to the show, but I'm always interested in, do they listen to the whole episodes or only partial? Um, uh, hopefully they listen to the whole thing, you know? Mm, I, I would assume they did. But, uh, so, uh, the one other question I wanted to ask you, um, before I take up any more of your time was, uh, this was super interesting to me. So, you know, whenever I'm getting ready for these episodes, I, I sent out a questionnaire, um, and just to kind of get, get some information about my guests and also help me just, you know, plan the episode out and everything. And on that questionnaire, you mentioned that, uh, you felt like one of the biggest challenges in law enforcement right now is the softening of the profession in an attempt to humanize the badge. And I thought, I think I know exactly what you mean by that. And I thought it was a great point, but again, kind of wanted you to tell me a little bit, flesh that out a little bit more and unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. And I'll try not to get too offensive with this, but I I think as a law enforcement profession, we have started to focus more on making what we do, how do I say, palatable for the general public rather than just focusing on doing our job. Um, Just because what we do or the enforcement action we have to take uh, may look frightening or harsh or, you know, I guess frightening is really the best thing I could think of for that. We start doing things like, oh, we... um, capitalize on mowing people's yards or we we um do our town did a um coffee with a cop kind of thing where you get to go and the public gets to talk to a cop and and we have sort of taken the focus off and when i say we i'm not referring to the lincoln county sheriff's office i'm referring to the profession as a whole taking the focus off of enforcing and put it more on making sure the public likes what we're doing yes um, can't, could not agree with you more. It, I could go on and on about that. I mean, the job of a law enforcement officer isn't to, um, mow somebody's front yard and record ourselves doing it with our cell phones so that we can release it to the news and say, see, we're not bad people. We're good people. We cut, <laughs> we cut grass for people. Um, instead of letting officers get out there and be proactive and, and enforce the law is really what we need to be doing. Yeah, I think in um I mean I I you you're hitting on something that that I've talked about on episodes um and I continue to kind of um hit on I think as a profession and again, I'm overgeneralizing here. I'm not saying every agency, but I think as a profession we have slowly lost sense of what our mission is and we have taken on this idea of um trying to appease people, uh, affirm people, even like an activist mindset at times, which I'm going to talk about, which I have talked about in this episode, uh, this, this activist mindset where we're, yes, we're more concerned with all these like special programs and social media and, um, taking, uh, selfies and, and doing dances and, and to show to try to prove to people that we're you know we can be trusted 
And all the while, if we would just be focused on the mission of trying to disrupt crime in the communities where we serve as much as possible, uh, to, to be a bother to those who are engaged in criminal activity and to uh, help people feel safer that are following the law, I don't think we'd have to do it. We wouldn't have to do all these special things. And I don't know when that changed or when that started to change. Um, you know, my I'm I'm 43. When I was growing up, I never desired or thought about why I don't see a police officer, why I can't talk to a police officer, why I can't meet a police officer. But somewhere that changed where that has become uh, something of importance that you somehow need to have this interaction, this friendly interaction with a police officer. It's not someone that you have a a respectful fear of. It's someone that you, you want to meet, you want to, you want to like spend time with them. You want to drink a cup of coffee with them. I don't know when that happened. Well, (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think it happened when, um, protest culture kind of entered into our our uh, now everyday lives where the the problem is is it doesn't take much now for people to protest something that's just the culture like if if a police officer's on the side of the road and interacts with someone in such a way that they felt unnecessary or unjust or hurt their feelings let's protest it if they hit some i mean god forbid they hit somebody and people see it We've got to protest it. So now to combat that, I guess we as a law enforcement, I don't want to say we, the law enforcement profession feels the only way to push back is to become over-friendly and over-appealing and over-just welcoming. I think that's yeah. the time that really started turning because before before people were protesting everything, you really didn't see the need to try and prove to people that we were super cool guys. We just We just weren't. Right. And for sure, I think those things, you know, any good officer is doing those things organically, like, you know, going, knowing the business owners in their area, going, walking into the banks and doing bank checks, stop in when they see kids playing basketball, maybe throwing a couple shots and everything. But this idea of promoting that and like making that the mission that, any good police officer should be doing those things, um, in, in my opinion. Um, but we shouldn't be like creating programs to make these interactions happen, also, in my opinion. I mean, it should be done organically by guys on pat- officers on patrol on the streets who are doing the job and, and doing it well, who understand the importance of interacting with the community. Uh, the 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 people in the community who are doing the right thing understand the importance of interacting with them well, but also understanding the importance of interacting with the criminal element in a proactive and aggressive way. And even just me saying aggressive is <laughs> is considered uh, not politically correct. Like the police should not be aggressive. Aggressive. I'm like, that's ridiculous. The police should be aggressive with people who are committing crime, not doing illegal things, not overstepping bounds, but definitely aggressive. There should be a a conflict there on a regular basis. Um, so yeah, I I when when I saw that, I was like, man, he wrote 
he wrote what so many times I've tried to put words to the, the, the softening of the profession in an attempt to humanize the badge. I think it's so true. And hopefully we'll uh, gain our wits again and get back to the mission again, as a profession, I, I'm overgeneralizing here. There's, there's many agencies that are still doing a good job, but man, there are some that have completely lost their way. So. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's just something that I, I don't know how you gain that back. I, I, I don't, and this is my opinion again, I don't think the public's respect is going to be won by seeing officers do super nice things all the time. I think a lot of respect can be won by seeing officers out there pushing back against the wolves that are trying to victimize the communities. I think you're, you, I don't right. know where we've got the mentality that respect needs to be won by uh, being very friendly and approachable. And, and not that you're not approachable, but you're not advertising that as that's your main goal is to be approachable. Respect should be, I, I think the public would, most of the public would agree that the respect would be won by, hey, this guy was driving around. He was roaming the neighborhoods looking for something to steal, someone to victimize, and these guys made it their mission to get out with him, not made it their mission to come right. to my house and do a birthday drive-by or whatever those things are called. You know what I'm talking right. about where you... you you blow yep. your siren, but you can't get out. You just blow your siren and drive by, and someone's recording it right. and records you, and you hopefully get your face on there so that you know you're seen as right a pillar of the community. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, I think we're 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 seeing because you know this uh, softening of the profession has uh, been happening slowly. Um, and the softening of how we uh, bring down consequences on criminals, these like no or low bail reforms and and all these things that you see happening within law enforcement, not just police officers and, and law enforcement officers, but even in the court system and everything. Unfortunately, to to gain that ground back, it's it's going to take a level of aggressiveness and once you give that ground up it's going to take more interactions with the criminal element that are more violent in order to gain that ground back because right now the criminal element has in some ways a leg up on law enforcement because they're just daring they're daring officers to do their job they're daring them to do their job right now, knowing that, uh, you know, the press will side with them if the officer uses force. And so once you start giving up that ground, it just takes a lot more work and unfortunately a lot more use of force incidents to gain it back because uh, criminals are emboldened. And now we have a public who believes they have the um, need to see every enforcement action we take, which is something I think relatively new, that there's nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, that is not available to just be viewed at any given time. It's a it's a bit of a quagmire right now. It will be interesting to see um, how all this works out over the next uh, 10, 15 years. Um, but I do I I do have some hope. You do see some people starting to wake up a little bit, especially in like areas like Chicago. Um, and out in California, people are like, wait a second, what we're doing is not working. Uh, in fact, 
it's so bad. I want to get out of there. Um, so I think people are starting to wake up a little bit and be like, hmm, maybe we should rethink how we're uh, doing doing this. Um, so I do do take some hope in that. But anyways, Adam, uh, really appreciate you coming on. Um, I know that uh, you're look not looking at very much sleep because you have a little one and you got to get up early tomorrow <laughs> for work. But uh, sure. did want to just did want to just give you. Uh, the final word here at the end of the episode, um, uh, towards the end here of our conversation, just give you the final word. Uh, you can uh, talk about whatever you like. The floor is yours. Deputy Sheriff Adam Georgia with a final word. Well, if I had to have a final word, it would be to encourage law enforcement officers not to uh, give in, not to give up. Um, the, the big push right now, obviously, is to uh, be more lax on your job to not um, to fear the consequences of doing your job right. Um, I would encourage you not to do that, to keep working hard, to keep fighting evil. Don't give up on uh, the mentality of a law enforcement officer to be there to push back on those who would victimize uh, the people in your community. Um, there are large groups of people that are doing that. Um, they haven't given it up. That's about it. I, I think I've said everything already in the earlier in the, the podcast. All right. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and talking to me. Yes, sir. I'm so glad I was able to connect with Deputy Sheriff Adam Georgia and have him on this episode and talk to him. And I'll have some more thoughts about uh, some of the things he touched on here towards the end of the episode. But first, you know what time it is. Cue the doom. Cue the dip. Kicking up the dust in pursuit. And on January 24th of this year, retired Honolulu police officer Stan Cook passed away at the age of 81. He is this episode's Cue the Dip winner for actions he took on August 31st, 1994. Here's what happened. Officer Stan Cook was a motorcycle police officer for the Honolulu PD. And on August 31st of 1994, he conducted a vehicle stop for a minor traffic violation. Unknown to him uh, was that the suspect was high on meth, had a record, had recently lost a job, and had recently been arrested for assaulting his wife. During the stop, Officer Cook wrote a citation for the suspect and reapproached the car. At this time, he observed an AK-47 that the suspect was trying to hide under a jacket on the front passenger seat. The suspect retrieved that weapon as Officer Cook pulled his own duty weapon and gave the suspect orders. Ultimately, he and the suspect engaged in a gunfight with over 30 rounds exchanged. Officer Cook had to perform a magazine exchange during the gunfight. Officer Cook was shot eight times, but he managed to shoot and kill the suspect from his back as he lay wounded in the street beside his motorcycle. What's incredible is even though he was shot eight times, he returned back to work approximately six months later. I'm pretty sure I know officers who have been off work longer for a hangnail. But this guy shot eight times, was back on the job in six months. Honolulu Police Department made a training video debriefing this shooting. Take a listen to Officer Cook's radio call for help and one of the first arriving EMS personnel describing the scene when he arrived. 
This officer involved shooting received widespread attention because someone with a camera witnessed the shooting and took photographs immediately after. It showed Officer Cook laying on the ground by his motorcycle, wounded, and calling for help on the radio while the suspect is laying out of his driver's window dead with the AK-47 on the street below him. It's it's quite an incredible photo. And if you follow the podcast on Facebook or, or social media, you you may have already seen it. If you haven't, you can go to the Facebook page and see the picture. Pretty incredible uh, photograph. Um, and, and this was before smartphones, so the fact that someone with a camera was at the location and captured the event was pretty amazing. And since Officer Stan Cook recently died, that photograph resurfaced. I saw it. Um, I just thought it was a pretty iconic photograph showing an officer who had just been involved in a life and death incident uh, and survived and won. And uh, so I I looked into the incident and it's just a really amazing story. Officer Stan Cook showed a will to live and survive under extreme circumstances and serious injury. And he is this episode's Kicking Up the Dust in Pursuit winner. My condolences to his family for their recent loss. Every day, officers like Stan Cook are doing a job that could put them in harm's way. Incidents like his are rare, but unfortunately not rare enough. And every officer knows that they could find themselves in a similar situation. And yet, around 800,000 law enforcement officers do it every day. My guest, Adam, is one of those officers, and if you recall, he stated that his calling comes from his desire to push back against the evil that exists out there. And evil does exist. Police officers see it and face it every day. We are inundated with news of evil every single day. Some may say, well, with so much evil, how can anyone believe that God exists? But if we know there is evil, we must also know there is good. And without good, we would not know how to define evil. So if there is good, then there must be a standard, and there must be a perfect good to measure the rest against. God is that perfect good, and he sent his perfect son, Jesus, to bring hope to this evil-filled world. A perfect man who was also fully God to stand in the gap between us and a holy God who hates sin, someone that could conquer sin and death and provide everlasting life for those who confess and believe. In our culture, many have really wussified Jesus, if I could say, turning him into a sappy, soft-spoken man that many people have no desire to follow. This couldn't be further from the truth. I want to share a story from John 18, 2-9. It's when the mob is coming into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus and ultimately 
crucify him. Judas is betraying Jesus, and Judas is bringing this mob of soldiers and Pharisees to the garden. And this is what it says. It says, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to, the, he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. So a couple things I want to point out from this passage. Uh, In verse four, it says, Jesus went forth. Jesus was outnumbered. He knew he was going to be wrongfully seized and ultimately killed. He knew what he was facing. And yet faced with a mob that had weapons, he went forth. He knew to provide a way for his people, he must go forth despite what it meant. And not only did he go forth, but he confronted. Whom do you seek? He asked. And they answered him to which he said, I am he. And when he said that, they fell to the ground. An answer so powerful, so pointed, that it put them on their backs. The power of Jesus on full display for all that were there that he could speak and lay men out. And then in verse 8, when Jesus again tells them, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. He's talking about his disciples who were with him. He's telling them, hey, listen, you're here for me. Let my disciples go in their way. It's me you want. Don't hurt those who are with me. And they listen to him. Jesus in this moment modeling a stand in the gap moment. But this stand in the gap moment paled in comparison to the stand in the gap moment that was coming. When Jesus died in my place, in your place on the cross, a free gift of sacrificial salvation for all who confess and believe, a gift that all can have, but that many reject. You see, when I talk to officers like Adam Georgia, and I speak about cue the dip winners, like officer Stan Cook, and when I think about the officers I've served with, I see sacrifice and stand in the gap moments all the time. And they all point me to greater stand-in-the-gap moments, like the one with Jesus in the garden, moving forth, moving toward the mob, and laying people out to protect others. And then ultimately, it points me to the greatest stand-in-the-gap moment of Jesus on the cross, standing in the gap for me, taking a penalty I deserve to provide hope for me and anyone else that would put their faith in the one who saves. We all have stand-in-the-gap moments, Whether we're parents, husbands, wives, bosses, employees, etc. We all have small stand-in-the-gap moments in our lives where we may be called to stand up and move forth, move forward and speak with boldness and power in protection of others or in defense of others. Police officers are acutely aware of this on each shift, knowing that stand-in-the-gap moments come with each shift. Some of them routine and barely noticeable, but some extremely dangerous that take great courage, strength, and devotion to duty. 
Whatever it may be, I hope your Stand in the Gap moments remind you of Jesus and propel you toward him. If you're a police officer and you question all the evil you see as you stand in the gap, may it propel you to know that there is good, perfect good, who stands in the gap for you as you kick up dust in pursuit.